This is the Like-Minded Investors Real Estate Podcast, episode number three. I am so excited to interview you. I, I'm excited for the community to get to know you a little bit um, and, you know, share your story because, you know, you're, you're new to the real estate investing scene and I know you're under contract on your first flip. And I think people uh, can get a lot of value out of what, what you're currently doing and going to do in the future. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time to interview me as co-host. I am super excited uh, to kind of share my story, let people know a little more about me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, let's start with that. Tell us who you are, you know, what, what, what you're all about basically. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Bill McKee. Uh, I live in the greater Philadelphia area, born and raised in that area. I'm 29. Um, and I am a new real estate investor. Um, I still have a W2 job. I work in software. Uh, I am not a developer, uh, but I am developer adjacent, we'll call it. Um, and yeah, I, I, I found real estate, was always fascinated by it. And I very, very recently took, took my uh, dive into it. So I guess tell people, um, what you're diving into. <laughs> so I am going to be doing a live in flip. Um, so I purchased a house uh, for under market value and my plan is to rehab it and make it like nice and shiny and new and hopefully <laughs> make a profit at the end when I go to sell it. So where did you find this, this flip? Um, so it's located in South Jersey geographically, um, and I found it on the MLS. Did you use a realtor? Did you find it yourself? Did you get like listing sent to you? Um, so I was looking on the MLS myself. Um, I also have a friend who I've met who's a realtor through a meetup, um, and she was uh, sending me MLS listings as well. Um, and she happened to come across this listing. It was a little bit different. Um, from a strategical perspective in terms of what I wanted to do for my first um, investment. Uh, but the deal was too good to pass up. And in this market, I'm sure you're aware, it's been a little crazy. Um, so I decided to be a little flexible and a little adventurous. And I took the dive. What, uh, what did you want to do if not getting into flipping? What was your original intent? <laughs> so you hear a lot about it, especially with rookies. Um, I wanted to house hack. Um the numbers for house hacking, um, especially in the area I wanted to be in, just made a lot of sense. Um, I had purchased a house when I was 26 in Philadelphia in a very popular area that was up and coming, um, super trendy, a lot of cool restaurants, things like that. Um, and I was paying like, I think when I first bought the house, I was paying $2,100 a month between taxes, insurance, and mortgage and interest. Um, I had refinanced that down to like 1900 or something like that because of appreciation and just lowering rates in my time there. Um, but with what I was making and just looking at my finances and along the way, educating myself about real estate, I had always said I wanted to rent that property, but what I was paying versus what it was appreciating for and you know, what I was saving, it just, it just didn't make sense to keep. So I kind of hit the reset button 
um, with the idea that I was going to go all in and, and purchase a house hack and live in, you know, one unit uh, of a duplex and rent the other out and live for um, as close to nothing as I possibly could get. Um, knowing full well that I probably would still have to pay five, six, seven hundred dollars a month, but compared to that two thousand bucks, it was going to be you know, night and day for me personally. So when you bought that first property, did you know anything about real estate investing at the time? Absolutely not. Um, I thought it was going to be easy. I thought you purchased a property, you lived there for you know two, three, four, five years, and then when you wanted to move on, upgrade your lifestyle, whatever, have kids. Um, you move out and because you already purchased it, you can just rent it. I had no idea like, actually what went into the numbers. I just assumed that um, putting five to 10% down on a property um, as a primary, I would be able to rent for more than what I was paying in mortgage. But unfortunately, that's not how it worked. And I spent a long time trying to figure out how to fit that square peg in a round hole. Yeah. So that's why I decided to sell. Yeah, uh, the market was really hot at the beginning of this year. I mean, it still continues to be hot. Um, and knowing I kind of wanted to hit the reset button, take take my profits and run, um, I really decided to just truly go all in on this thing. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. If you if you made a profit because of the appreciation of the market, a, a little bit, yeah. So when you factor in like my refi, I bundled in my my closing costs into that. Um, then you also have to factor in. I did do some repairs. It was flipped seven years prior to when I purchased it. So when I sold it, it was about like nine years old. Um, so there were some things, of course, along the way I had to do. Um, so when you factor all of that in and commissions and closing, I walked away with a very small profit. Well, better than nothing, right? I mean, did that give you a taste for, for um, you know, wanting to make profits in, in real estate? Absolutely. And I think maybe like if you were to like psychoanalyze me, maybe that is why my first deal is going to be a flip is because no matter... How long I lived in that property, all the mistakes that I may or may not have made, all the money I put into it, I still walked away up a little bit. And I like to think real estate tends to be a little bit forgiving if you give it the time to be forgiving. Oh, I love that. That's going to be one of <laughs> one of your quotes. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> um. So I guess now you've learned how to how to analyze deals, how to find them. Um. You know, where'd you learn all that? Honestly, a lot of my time was spent um, in the car listening to podcasts. Um, while I was living in Philly, I had about an hour to an hour and a half commute, depending on traffic each way, um, oh, three wow. days a week. So not, not the full five days a week. Don't worry, just three. Um, but still, I had, what, nine hours a day a week in the car. Um, so that was plenty of time to listen to the backlog of 300 something bigger pockets episodes. And then they released the rookie podcast. And then there were other podcasts that came along, along the way, like Bonnie's good bones podcast and, and so many others that I listened to. Um, so I had plenty of time in the car to, uh, to listen and educate myself. So that was my first kind of venture into educating myself around uh, what a house hack is, what a burr is, how easy this thing is, what a cash out refi, um, how to estimate rehab costs, the benefits from a tax perspective, whatever the episode title title was or whoever the guest was, I just tried my best to soak up all the knowledge. And then I supplemented that podcast knowledge once I felt like I was had a little bit more of like a diminishing return from the podcast. Um, I started purchasing books and reading the books. I started, I went to a meetup um, and I just started networking and talking to people and asking questions. Then I started looking at properties that I thought would be profitable. And 
plugging them into the bigger pockets calculator. I mean, I think you get like five free tries or something like that before you have to pay. Yep. I used all five. And then I basically kind of reverse engineered a spreadsheet being a spreadsheet guy <laughs> and um, was able to create a spreadsheet to kind of continue doing analysis analyses um, on random properties. And some of those properties weren't good, uh, even though I thought they might be good. And some of the ones I didn't think were going to be good ended up being good. And I obviously didn't have the capital to purchase any of them at the time, uh, but it was just really, really good practice. And that's what led me to kind of come to the conclusion from a data-driven uh, perspective that my house in Philly wasn't going to work. I used the calculator on my own property to prove to myself that it wasn't going to be a profitable venture to keep. Yeah, there you go. So, um, you know, speaking of like analyzing deals, was there something you were doing every day? You know, a lot of people I see on Instagram and stuff, they're like, oh, I analyze one, two, three deals every single day in the market that I, that I want to be in. Um, how did you kind of prepare yourself to know when you found a good deal? So I'm going to be totally honest and say a lot of those people, like that might be what they're doing. Um, and that might be a part of them trying to be comfortable to, to get started. For me, I always knew I wanted to get in real estate. Um, it was just a matter of when and how. Even in college, I was like, yeah, like I'm going to own a rental someday. I just didn't know like what I was saying. I, I, but I always knew it was something I just never kind of um, really went after it. Um, so for me, I always knew the numbers worked in the sense of, you know, rent needs to be greater than mortgage insurance and expenses. I just didn't really know what those expenses beyond, you know, what you see on paper were, you know, when you factor in snow removal or lawn care, landscaping, maintenance, um, those all made sense to me. Uh, but then when you have to factor in like long-term repairs, like capital expenditures or uh, property management, or even like kind of calculating like and a potential future vacancy, because mortgages aren't cheap. Um, I didn't, factor that all in at first. Uh, but then, you know, by listening to the podcast and reading, when I created the spreadsheet, I kind of knew what those numbers needed to be. I knew what things would rent for. I used like Rentometer and Zillow to figure out what rents would be. I wasn't analyzing a deal or two a day. I was analyzing maybe a deal a week, but I was very comfortable with numbers. I always have been. I've been a spreadsheet guy. And I knew that if I knew what the rent was and I knew what the mortgage was, I could plug it in the spreadsheet and I'd be good. And I would trust my own data because I trust my spreadsheet. I love that. I love that you created your own spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know me and I'm sure as we get into future episodes, it'll come out more, but I love my spreadsheets. I love creating them. Um, I was just listening to, I think it was an older episode of the the Rookie podcast. Um, and they were, gosh, what was the quote? It was so funny. Ashley was was saying that she saw someone on Instagram wearing a t-shirt that said, um, oh man, I'm going to totally mess it up now. Something about freaking the spreadsheets. What's the first part that people say? Gosh, uh, Freaking the sheets, freaking the sheets is the yeah, real quote, but there's right? like a oh, late lady in the streets, freaking the sheets. Yeah, exactly. But it's lady in the streets, freaking the spreadsheets. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I thought it was so funny, um, but I just totally messed that up. So, um, back to uh, your W two. So, is yeah. one of your goals to eventually leave your W two? Do you like your W two? Um, you know, kind of where are you with that? Yeah, I, I think every day I change my mind on this um, based on whoever I talk to. I mean, ideally, I, the whole reason I want to do this is to be my own boss. 
Um, I've always had that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, it's partly why you and I are, are doing this thing. We're doing a podcast. Um, it's why I wanted to get in real estate. It's why I've had other ventures before this that were extremely unsuccessful. Um, and we're not going to talk about them. Um, sure you don't <laughs> want to talk about your selfie stick? No, I don't want to talk about it. I'm really bitter about it and it's terrible. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it just is, you know, I forgot the question. Uh, W2, whether or not you want to quit it. Oh yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. So I go back and forth on it every day, um, depending on who I talk to, depending on what I see. Uh, part of me loves the idea of that financial freedom and that time freedom, more importantly. Uh, I am doing this to basically buy myself time and freedom in the future. Um, I'm very cognizant of like what that future looks like. I do want to be married. I do want to have kids. Um, and I do want to travel. And I want to be the homeroom dad who goes in for the holidays and, and sets up all the decorations and is coaching basketball or, or going to dance class or or whatever hobbies my kids are into um so for me that time freedom is super important yeah you can't do those things without time freedom exactly you know you can't fit it all in in an hour lunch break that being said it's super hard to get funding without a w2 um especially like starting out so i think for me it's a matter of when not necessarily a matter of if i do like my day job most days some days are just so many meetings and I hate sitting at my desk. I hate being in the meetings. I hate having those conversations. That being said, I love being the problem solver. I love collaborating with people, especially super smart people. And my job allows me to do that. My job essentially allows me to be the CEO of my product and drive the strategy. And I love that. I love working with everybody across different departments. I love having my foot or I guess my hand in, in every cookie jar on some level and delegating. It's, it's my favorite thing about it. That being said, it is very demanding and I would like to put that attention elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I know that's a lot of, a lot of fear of people who have a W2 is, you know, once they quit it, they won't be able to get the financing, but you just said something uh, very interesting that I think is definitely going to help you out in the future that, you're very creative and that you like problem solving. Um, you know, you could get into creative financing very easily, especially once you have this flip under your belt and have a little bit of a reputation. Is that something that, you know, might fuel you to quit your W2 a little bit sooner? Are you thinking about creative financing at any point, or are you just going to stick with conventional financing as long as possible? I, to me, it's like having a tool belt, right? And the more tools you can put in your tool belt and knowing when to use them, more importantly, I think is critical. Um, I love the idea of conventional financing. It allows me to put less than 20% down uh, on a primary residence. And when you're thinking about house hacking or live-in flips, that becomes super valuable because you can keep more cash on hand for either the repair itself or for other future deals or just to be more liquid. Um, so I think maybe a hybrid approach for me makes the most sense going forward. Um, I will be the first to admit I don't know enough to know enough when it comes to creative financing. That being said, I know that there's plenty of people who do. Um, and there's a lot of documentation out there that to your point, 
I can problem solve it. I can figure it out. And odds are the person who is selling the property might not know everything either. And you just kind of work together to kind of satisfy each other's problems. Their problem is that they might have a property that they don't want to own anymore. And your problem is that you don't know how to finance and get that property. Well, those are mutually beneficial problems that you can solve together. And it just becomes a conversation. So even though I don't know creative financing, I know how to conversate with people and solve that problem. Love it. I absolutely love that. Um, so you, I guess, oh, I have so many things I want to get into, but I guess first, let's talk about your, about your flip. Um, how are you financing this flip? Conventional, uh, 5% down. Nice. And how'd you find that? Um, I, Alone, called a, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I called a bunch of places. I Googled a bunch of local mortgage companies. Um, and it just so happens that my realtor, who again is a super good friend from a meetup, used who this. We will be interviewing some. We will be interviewing road. that that person. Um, and she recommended this company. She knew the owner and kind of made a warm handoff for me. And to me, I got a really good rate. I'm not by any means like upset with it. Could I have gotten better? I truthfully don't know. It's a pretty good rate. But to me, it, it wasn't about shaving a tenth of a point off or shaving a, a couple hundred bucks on, on you know, the BS fees uh, that come with closing costs. To me, it was building a relationship and knowing that this person wants to work with me. Um, they were very open to the idea that I might only be in this property for six months. A lot of conventional loans uh, require you to be there for at least a year. So like I said, even though the rate might not have been the best, the closing costs might not have been the best. And to be perfectly fair, they are pretty good, but you know. What is your rate? 2.875. All right, that's that's pretty like, good. It's pretty good. Like, could I have gotten 2.75? Maybe if I kept calling people, but at what point would I have been keep calling people that it wouldn't be worth my time? And right. again, if they gave me 2.75, maybe they would have made me live in the house for a year and the market could turn in eight year. And with a flip, speed is everything. So having somebody who was open to me being there for six months or less, giving me a really solid rate, really good closing costs, and having like a warm handoff from somebody I know and trust and willing to work with me in the future, more importantly, on other deals and understand what I'm trying to do was way more valuable than saving, you know, a couple bucks a month. Yeah. Yeah. So is six months uh, your goal for getting that flip done? <laughs> we shall see. Yeah. <laughs> Did you, do you have your timeline all marked out? And <laughs> it's funny because you you know me. We we've talked about this a little bit, and I am a big software dork. So of course I have a project management software with all of all of the things I need to do and what's blocking what and who I need to call, and you know what materials I need and where to purchase them and what do I need to purchase first and what can I wait on. So of course I have some sort of um, idea in my head. That being said, a lot of it, uh, once you get so far out and everything is blocked by certain things, um, it's really hard to predict. Like if I need to um, install a kitchen, you know, I'm, I'm gutting the kitchen. I can't do that until I remove this one non-load bearing wall. But then I also need to do the drywall to touch up that drywall and then I need to install recessed lighting which means I need to add wiring which means I need to call an electrician then I need to get cabinets and a countertop guy and I need to move the water line to under this window there's a lot of moving parts and at some point it just becomes really really hard to predict exact timelines because there's a lot of people involved 
a lot of movement. Um, there might be some things that I can predict and have those conversations as early as possible and start to really finalize that timeline. Um, but for things like that that are a little complicated, it's hard to really have that up front for me, at least personally. Yeah, I completely agree. You can't. And then, you know, you're going to have schedule changes and people not showing up. and Exactly. Well, and that's why I don't want to spend too much time project managing up front. I want to leave some flexibility in the deal. Like I know what I need to do the first two weeks. I need to remove that non-load bearing wall. I need to remove the flooring, rip up the carpets um, and make all of the calls to all the people that I need to come out. I need the electrician out. I need a carpet guy to come out. I need a drywall guy to come out to help me with that. And I need the roofers to come out. And then I'm going to get a kitchen consultation to uh, see how we lay out the kitchen best with the wall no longer there and, and things like that. So all those people need to come out within the two, first two weeks and get all the quotes and, and run ideas by. And then from there, we're just going to be sprinting to do all that crazy stuff. So in our first episode with Lauren and Kyle, they were talking about how uh, they DIY'd a lot of the, the stuff in the beginning and mm -hmm. they're just starting to outsource. What's your plan with, you know, are you going to be doing some of the work? Are you going to outsource most of it? Uh, especially since the live and flip, I feel like you're kind of at an advantage to be able to learn some of that, that fun DIY stuff that everybody's doing on Instagram and <laughs> sharing on YouTube. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Um, when I bought the idea, I had the idea that I was going to do everything myself. And as we've had those conversations with Lauren and Kyle and other people and, I've just had that time between, you know, the agreement of sale uh, and closing to kind of reflect on it. I've realized slowly that I can't do everything myself. I'm not a handy person. I work in software. Like, I don't know how to wield a tool properly. I mean, I can do some basic stuff. I'm not like totally inept, but I've never tiled in my life. I've never laid floor in my life. But guess what? Like, we're going to do some of that stuff. We're going to learn along the way and we're, I'm going to have a new appreciation you know, for, for what it truly takes so that when I do hire those things out later in the future and somebody gives me a quote, I can always reflect on my time spent in this live and flip and be like, yeah, that's worth it. Or you know what? No, that's not worth it. Um, and I'll have that kind of mindset. Now there are some things I am hiring out this place needs a new roof. I'm not doing a roof. I don't know how to do a roof. I don't know anyone that does other than roofing companies. Um, while I am doing the LVP floor, because it's pretty much snap and click, and I'm pretty sure I can figure it out, I'm not laying carpet. And then when it comes to drywall, like some of the areas need like a nice quick skim coat. That needs a finer touch than me never doing that before. So I'm going to hire that out. I think it's worth it. But I'll, I'll do the painting and everything myself. Yeah, I love it. Definitely uh, roofs. Uh, <laughs> I have done quite a few roofs with my husband over the past, uh, what, seven years now that I've, that we've been together. And we finally just stopped doing roofs a couple years ago, but on our first flip, we did the roof, just him and I, and I will never forget, you know, working till 9 PM at night out on that roof till Insane. it got dark during the summer. It was awful. So, um, it's cool that you're going to like pick and choose the things that you want to do and outsource the rest. Yeah, there's certainly an advantage to it, uh, for sure. Um, and, and it just really comes down to like the trades that I don't know and the trades that I feel less confident in. Um, this house very much is a cosmetic flip, meaning everything inside the walls should be good. There shouldn't be any issues with like the, uh, the rough plumbing, uh, the electric as it is, or any of the HVAC or anything expensive like that. Um, most of it is flooring, paint, you know, some new pretty tile that kind of stuff. Um, anything that I want to do that, um, 
is more labor intensive are things I want to do that doesn't exist now. Like there aren't, there isn't good lighting in the living room, kitchen or dining room or hallway. So I'm going to be adding recessed lights. Hire, hire that out. I'm not running wire. I don't think I'm qualified. I won't have a house if I ran the wire. And once I flew, like that's <laughs> Might just be not burned my skill set. <laughs> exactly. That's just not my skill set. So um, I think as a rookie, you have to kind of know what your limitations are as well. Um, I think that's super valuable to know what you can do or, or what you see on a YouTube or an Instagram, what people are doing. And if you notice what a lot of the people are doing are the things I mentioned, they're doing the tiling, the flooring, maybe they're installing a toilet or a vanity or some basic like plumbing um, or installing like a fan or a, a light fixture, but they're not actually literally running the wire from the panel uh, through the walls. They're not installing an HVAC. And if they are, I commend them. That's amazing. But most of the people that you see are doing mostly the cosmetic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm all for outsourcing the stuff that you really should have a license for. for. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess let's, you know, Oh, what? Oh, actually before I wanted to ask you, do you have a budget for this already? Like, did you come up with a, yeah. and how did you, how did you do that? If you, um, you know, you couldn't have brought your, all those contractors out there already to give you estimates. Yeah. So kind of, how did you come up with your budget? uh like everything else excel <laughs> no um so a lot of the stuff was easy to find as far as materials uh i kind of had a design in my head uh up front so i kind of already knew what flooring i wanted what tile i wanted um what tools i might need um which there is some value in purchasing them up front this deal has enough wiggle room for me to purchase the tools and then basically have those tools forever so although it might make make this deal less profitable on paper it adds value to future potential deals as well by having those tools already um so everything that i needed from a material perspective doors trim what whatever i need um i put in a spreadsheet categorized it by room and i got down to you know screws and uh grout like i i got down to it um where there is a variable is is in the labor to your point um i tried my best to guesstimate based off of regional google um and talk again talking with people that i know um to come up with the budget uh, my budget roughly is thirty five thousand dollars um the likelihood that i go over is high as a rookie i'll be the first to admit it um my my agent thought it could be done for 30. Um, there are some, some things that I'm trying to do to, to push, um, up the, uh, sale price. And I think that extra five grand probably is worth it in my opinion. Um, that being said, we shall see. <laughs> um, does yeah. your, does your budget include, um, a contingency? Yeah. So that five grand really comes down to a, it, it really kind of is a contingency more or less. Okay. So like I said, like, I, I'm kind of, like, I think because I'm doing it. I could probably get it done for 30. Um, but I do want some like nicer finishes and things like that. And I know I'll make mistakes. So that five grand is both wiggle room and also me trying to be realistic and trying to push up the sales price. It's a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, so can we dive into the numbers just a yeah, little bit here? Uh, of so what did you purchase it for? You know, you re we hear heard that your budget is yeah. 35. What are you going to, what's the ARV? Yeah. What's your sure. potential profit? All that fun stuff. Yeah, so the house was actually listed for 169, um, which 
as you know, this market has just been absolutely crazy. I've put offers in on duplexes and lost by a lot of money. Um, so knowing that there was wiggle room in this deal, um, and I had some knowledge that maybe not every investor putting an offer in on this deal knew, I was comfortable swinging for the fences to make sure I got it. So my what, what I did was I put a step-up clause uh, in the contract that said, I will go $2,000 above your highest offer up to $200,000. Um, so the highest offer was 195. So my agreement was 197. Um, then, like I said, $35,000 budget puts me, gosh, I'm terrible at math, like live on the fly. I need my spreadsheets. Um, what's that? Like 232, something like that. Oh, for your, um, for your, for your overall. Yeah. 232, right. Overall. I'm li- literally getting out my calculator right now because yes, you're right. 232. <laughs> okay. I'm not as bad as I thought, I guess. That was a quick little quiz time on, on basic math for me, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'm all in for 232 and uh, the comps are in the 300 to 305 range, but given how hot this market is in particular, um, it's a blue ribbon school district, I believe. Um, I think we can push it maybe up to 310, 315. Wow. So you do. Yeah. You got, you got quite a bit of wiggle room there. Yep. I mean, 305 minus 232 is 73 grand. And then obviously in there you have your commission and your, you know, all the selling expenses that, that go along yeah. with the flip. Yeah. I, I, th- I think I ran the calculation and I said, if it sells for like 300, I should walk away with like 40, I think was my number. A little nice. less, a little more. I, nice. I can't remember. Yeah. And then everything above that is just obviously gravy. All right. So in this hot market, did you have to move pretty quick on that deal? Yeah, I think the the uh, property was only on the MLS for like a day or two. Um, and my agent really is just awesome. I think it's imperative for people to really understand the value of an agent, uh, especially if you're going on the MLS and, and a good one at that who understands working with investors. I mean, here, I know you're an agent and I know you're a great one. And I know that you know, where I was looking to invest from a state perspective, you know, you're not licensed in that particular state. I know we both know who my agent is and we, we both know she's awesome. Um, she has done such an amazing job, both from, you know, putting offers in uh, on potential house hacks that I lost, uh, working with me to sell my property in Fishtown and finding me an agent uh, to get that moved in like next to no time. And also just kind of guiding me through the process as a rookie and my mindset shift I mean, she was a big part of, of it, not in the sense that she forced me to, to do a flip instead of a house hack, but, but knew my potential and saw in me what maybe I didn't always see in myself. Um, and just everything she's done for me just added so much value. So um, we moved on this quick. She told me we were going to have to move on it quick. And I mean, the rest really is history. We knew we had a really strong offer. There were some other contingencies in the contract beyond the $2,000 step-up clause that made it super attractive to the seller to not say no. What? What? Uh, Like what? So I'm crazy. I waived the appraisal and I waived the, the home inspection. And I would not recommend that for a lot of um, rookies, but I have an advantage in that my agent is married to a contractor and he had already walked the property. Um, so they pretty much knew what was wrong and what needed to be fixed. So I had a little bit of an advantage when it came to that. And as far as the appraisal thing, we kind of knew uh, where it would appraise. We ran some pretty good comps. Um, 
and it all ended up working out. I think it appraised for like 214. So I had like, or 211 or something. So I had like 15 grand already built into the deal um, before I even signed on the contract. Um, but that could have went really bad. <laughs> but in this, in this market, you have to really do some things like that, that maybe are a little uncomfortable to get the deal. And I feel very confident that it will work out in the end. And so far to this point, being under contract, um, everything like from a financial perspective has gone pretty much the way I predicted. Um, I am very excited for you. And <laughs> I, I don't think you're not totally nuts. Um, <laughs> we waive on every property we've ever bought. We've waived the um, inspection, but then again, my husband is a contractor. So yeah, <laughs> we do have a little confidence there, but maybe for, you know, newbies who don't really understand why it's a benefit for you to, that you waived the appraisal, maybe explain to them, you know, what would have happened if that property appraised for, you know, below what yeah. you ended up, what your offer was. Sure. So just to kind of throw the numbers out again. So I was putting 5% down on a property that I purchased for 197. So if you just round up and say that I purchased it for 200,000, just for simple math, 5% of that is $10,000 which means I would have to put $10,000 down and the mortgage would write a mortgage or my debt for $190,000, just simple rounding. Now, an appraisal is ordered by the bank to basically tell the bank that if something were to go wrong and the purchaser of the house can't make their payments anymore and the bank had to foreclose on it, what was the likelihood that they'd be able to recoup that debt? that they're lending out. So they need to make sure that it appraises for, in this case, at least $190,000 because that's what they're underwriting. Now, if it appraised for $190,000 and I purchased it for $200,000, that still doesn't look great for me, but likely the bank will still write it because that's their debt and that's all they care about. So if it appraised for less than $190,000, the bank won't write a note which means you have to figure out how to come up with those funds. Um, so by waiving it, instead, if it were to, if you didn't waive it and it appraised for less, you could walk away from the deal. If you waive it, you're on the hook for that money. So in this scenario, if I put 10% down on a $200,000 property, I put $10,000 down. If the bank was going to write a note for $190,000, but the house only appraised for one fifty. I'd be on the hook for that $40,000 difference, which okay. means I would really have to put $50,000 down, which as you know, like being a rookie, like you don't have a lot of, I mean, some people maybe do, but you know, when you factor in, you know, saving your life savings to get into a deal and funding it all yourself, down payment plus rehab plus closing costs is a lot of money. I mean, if you really factor it, tally it all up i think like 35 it's like 50 something thousand dollars it's not a small chunk of change if you had to add another forty thousand to that like i don't know if a lot of people can just like have that in cash to yank from they might have it in other ways they might be able to fund it differently but it, it does add some stress to the deal for sure so it is a risk in that regard right and it's such it's a, it's a protection for the you know the the seller that you're not gonna be able to walk away um, exactly yeah you're gonna cover that that difference between the appraisal and the purchase price so yeah, very good explanation. Um, so let's get into, you say that you're going to sell this property in six months. Mm -hmm. What happens after the six months? If it's, if it's your living, 
live in, uh, you know, live and flip. You're living there, obviously. Where are you going to live after you sell it? It's a good question. I, I quite haven't figured that out yet. I very well might be homeless. Um, so, no. So in all actuality, I am recording this and have been recording the podcast from my parents' house. I, um, when I sold the property in Fishtown, the market was rising rapidly. I was very much ready to purchase immediately, um, but I just couldn't find anything. Um, I thought by now in almost August that I would be long gone from my parents' house, but I am not. Um, so uh, the idea for me is to figure out how to get a house hack um, prior to me finishing this flip. And if that means finding some sort of creative funding or, or alternative lending, uh, I am certainly open to that. Um, but I'm also open to trying to time the close of a house hack with the close of this flip. Um, so while in addition to working at W2, and doing some of the rehab and coordinating other people helping me with this rehab, I will also be actively looking for a second deal. I love it. Yeah. So when you say house hack, um, I know, you know, I know that you've been looking for a duplex. Mm -hmm. uh, would you, you know, are you going to do the typical, well, I guess it's not typical. Everyone does a house hack differently, you know, with by rent, rent by the room or renting one side out, living in the other kind of, do you have flexibility with how you're going to do it? Would you buy a single family and rent by the room? Are you stuck on a duplex or? I don't want to have roommates. Um, I joke with my friends that the next roommate I have will be my partner. Um, I'm, it's just not something I'm interested in. I, I mostly work from home. I'm on the phone pretty much all day. Um, it's just not something I'm, I'm truly interested in. Um, a lot of my friends also pretty much at this point either work from home full-time or a couple of days a week, which I know for me, um, I personally can't work out of a bedroom. I need a separate room. As I mean, it could be a bedroom, but like it, needs, it can't be where my bed is. I struggle to sleep if I'm doing other things in the bedroom. So for me, I need that to be a totally separate area. So for me and one other person to kind of sh cohabitate, if we both were working from home and both had that same mentality, we would need four bedrooms for two people. Like at that point, it just makes no sense. So I'd, I'd rather just kind of like live in one unit myself in a two or three bedroom and then have somebody else live in a different unit, two or three bedroom and just live side by side and keep the peace. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, everyone has their, their different take on that. So I was just curious. <laughs> yeah. Um, I yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, yeah, like there's certain things I, I, I like to think of myself as pretty flexible. Uh, but there are some things that, you know, I need to live. And I think when people talk through all these strategies, I think what they miss is the personal aspect of like, yeah, live and flip. Yeah, burr. Yeah, house hack. Like, all oh, that's great. Like, it, everyone has a different sacrifice you need to make. Everybody as an individual have has what they're willing to sacrifice. Like this flip has an ugly blue tub from the nineties. Like it's, it'll be clean. Like we're going to clean it. It's going to look great. But like some people that might be like their absolute hard. No, I can't shower in a tub that's 20 years, 30 years old. But for me, that's perfectly okay. And for me, it's, you know, not living in a house and sharing rooms and being able to walk around and seeing like one of my friends, you know, walking around in their boxers, like eating uh, like corn pops, like walking to their office. Like, that's just not for me. <laughs> All right. So what if you can't find a house hack before you 
sell and finish your flip? What are you going to do? It's a good question. And I've kind of been like floating ideas around uh, in my head. Um, would I do another live and flip maybe if the opportunity arose potentially? Um, especially if I could fund that flip with someone else's money, then I could kind of just pseudo live there while I act, just kind of buy myself some more time to find a house hack. Could I find something to rent? Um, or more importantly, um, even though I, I uh, maybe just said I don't want to live with a friend because of boxers and corn pops, maybe, maybe if it was like really, really short and there was just like a week overlap or something, maybe one of my friends would be generous, generous enough to let me live there um, or, or something like that. Honestly, there's so many options. I don't love the idea of, of renting, uh, but the profit on this live and flip was just just too good to pass up. And I knew that was a risk going in that coming out of it, I might not have a place to live. Um, but at the same time, um, it's perfectly okay. I mean, if worse comes to worse, I can always move back in with my parents. It's really not ideal. I'm 29 and I've been here like seven months and I'm very much ready to leave. Um, but if worse came to worse, like that is an option as well. So I guess, um, you know, from this conversation, it kind of sounds like, I feel like you have a high level of risk tolerance to a point. Do you think, you know, once you had, you know, I feel like because you're single and you don't have kids and all that, do you think that you're taking these risks now because you know, in the future, you might not be able to? Yes and no. I never thought about it in the sense of I wouldn't be able to. I think about it more in the sense that I'm making these sacrifices now uh, for the benefit of them later. Um, I don't think about it in the sense that I wouldn't be able to. Um, I, th I Trust me, I don't have kids, so there, there's parents out there that can certainly let me know. But I, I don't see why maybe you couldn't live in a live and flip with like a, a two-year-old. I mean, assuming you have all the you know proper stuff and, and, and protections for that that child so they don't like injure themselves or anything uh, i don't see why it would be impossible they they won't even remember the ha the house right uh, it might be a little more difficult i'm not saying that that it wouldn't be um but i i do think of myself as, as basically setting myself up for my future family um so i am willing to make a little more sacrifice now being single knowing that i'm the sole um decision maker of my own one person household yeah yeah, it's not like you're going to move your wife and kids in with with a friend and corn pops and boxers. No, definitely. I don't trust me. I think a divorce would be on the way if <laughs> if I if I did that. Um, but even though it does sound like maybe I am maybe to other people a little risky, a little adventurous, um, I do want to make sure people know that when it comes to this this flip, people always wonder with flips like are they going to be profitable? What happens if something goes wrong and they don't make their money or whatever? I have three exit strategies to this property. Uh, the first one being flip. If the market suddenly turns because it has been so red hot and I can't make a, a suitable amount of money based uh, flipping it, I can rent it. It's a four bedroom house in a really nice suburb. Um, and I ran the numbers for it being a rental it cash flows a couple hundred bucks a month after all of the expenses. Like it's a nice rental actually, when you actually factor the numbers down. Um, but I would have to leave all my money in the deal and basically start from zero in terms of my cash position. So it's not ideal, but if the market 
absolutely crashes, I can do that for a year or two and figure it out. And my third exit strategy is that I can just live there. It's a nice four bedroom house in a nice suburb. Like I think I'm my, with the taxes and stuff because it's New Jersey and taxes are high. I think all in I'm paying like 1300 bucks a month, which is cheaper than what I would be paying in rent and cheaper than the $2,000 I was paying in Fishtown by $700. So even though I am risky and I'm crazy because I'm living in a place for six months and then I don't know where I'm living after that six months, um, I do have three different exit strategies for this property. Oh, I love that you touched on that. I didn't even know that. So yep. <laughs> wouldn't have even thought to ask. Um, so I guess you really only have, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you really, your criteria is mainly a house hack or another live in bird. Those are kind of like your two main things that you're on the hunt for. I think so at this point. Um, if I could find a property that was like a sweetheart deal where it w- like the monthly payment was next to nothing and I could rehab it and live there for the next five or 10 years and then just leverage my W2 income and basically bankroll my future real estate and pull HELOCs from this property, I would a thousand percent do that. I just know I haven't found that deal and I know that that's like the white whale. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of future real estate, where do you see your portfolio going, you know, in the next two, three, four, five, ten 10 years? It's, it's crazy. Uh, so in the next couple of years, ideally I would like to, I think quit that W2. Um, I see myself being a full-time podcast host for like-minded investor um, and being a full-time in- investor. Um, what that looks like and what my portfolio looks like I have absolutely no idea. Um, I think it'll change. I know things that I am interested in. Um, I'm very much interested in multifamily house hacking over the next couple of years. Uh, I am very much interested in purchasing single families and strong cash flowing neighborhoods um, within, you know, the greater Philadelphia area that I could self-manage. I'm also interested in out-of-state investing. And I I know we know a couple of people who do that and are very successful at that. and I see a lot of opportunity in other areas that are maybe a little less expensive, a little more uh, stronger on the cash flow uh, than this area. Um, but outside of like where people live kind of real estate, I'm super interested in other stuff. I mean, you and I have talked about it. Um, I love the idea of storage units, but I know everybody right now is in love with storage units. So I know that they're about to appreciate. So when other people start zigging, I like to zag. So as much as I love the idea of it, and I think I would be extremely successful at it. Um, you know, we'll see what happens over the next five years. A lot of people are getting into it. Um, and I think that market's going to be super saturated. Um, so where I'm looking and I've seen other people have success in it. Um, and I love the idea of doing it is liquor stores. Um, I personally love, I'm not a big drinker, but I like the idea of making like fancy cocktails um, and like looking at all the fancy different liquors and whiskeys and things like that. Um so I love the idea of it. And I know that, you know, everybody drinks and it could be a super profitable venture and it would be treated more like a business than a real estate deal, um, at least in my head. Um, and the other thing that I find fascinating, um, and I'm actually terrible at the game, but eventually I would love to figure out a way to buy a golf course. I have no idea how to do it. I don't even know if it's a super profitable venture, but I love the idea of being able to go with my buddies to my golf course and play around at 18. 
you so. uh you should go in with us on we're looking at a campground right now that it's huge it's I, I think it's too big for us as for our first RV park, but it has a, a golf course on it that has not been in use in like two or three years. So it's kind of like a rundown thing. So that Value might be fun. Add. Yeah. That would be, be that's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'll be, uh, listen, like I have been playing on and off golf for the past 15 years. And, and really this summer was the first time where I really committed to playing once a week, nine holes with my friends. I'm the worst golfer ever. And I similar to real estate, I think this is really um, you know, something that can be related is I had so much fear about going out there with my friends. A couple of my friends are really good at golf. One of my buddies is like, I think a a two hand I might offend him. I think he's like a two handicap, which is like I think scratch is like like almost pro. Like he's he's an, he's incredible. And for the longest time I was super scared to go out with him. Because I'm so bad. Like, I miss the ball sometimes. It goes left. It goes right. It doesn't go where I want it to go. It doesn't go far. And every once in a while, I hit a good shot, and I think I'm royalty. Um, but I had this fear about going out. And now we make a commitment to go out once a week, play nine holes, and I've gotten so much better. I'm not good by any means, but I've gotten so much better. And that fear is gone. I play quick. And guess what? No one cares how good or bad I am. We have a few laughs. And because I play quick and I'm not holding anybody up, no one cares. So I think that's related to real estate in the sense that, like, don't have fear. There's plenty of people out there who don't do something or spend years not doing something because they're afraid. And, you know, if it's real estate, if it's starting a business, if it if it's golfing or, or playing tennis, or whatever it is, there's somebody out there who does it. There's somebody out there who does it well and you could find out how to do it. And if you practice, you'll get good at it. Yeah. I love that. And then, then it's the consistency too, in doing, yeah. you know, with anything, but for you golfing, you know, consistently doing it every week and getting better at it and getting over the fear. It's the same thing with real estate and putting in offers and, yeah, you know, absolutely getting comfortable with that. Yeah. It's so, all related. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of, you know, getting over fears and stuff, I feel like, you know, rookies have a lot of fear about getting into real estate and getting that first deal. Mm -hmm. And, um, are there any, you know, things that you're doing in regards to your flip that you are kind of hedging against making mistakes or, you know, things that could come up in the future? Yeah. So, um, I'm trying my best to take lessons learned from as many people that I know when it comes to a rehab. Um, and being me, I'm trying to find the efficiencies in things. Something simple, like I know there's a lot of big ticket items I need to purchase, like a tub and toilets and things, and I know they won't fit in my Honda Civic. So when I take my U-Haul to move all my stuff in, I'm going to then drive that U-Haul over to Home Depot and purchase everything. And then it's just in my house, in my garage, and I won't have to wait for shipping it's just all there and when i'm ready to install a new tub it's it's there i just go grab it um so there there's things i've learned from other people there's things that like i've found efficiencies in like that um but really i think when it comes to failures like you got to learn those lessons yourself a little bit um and i'm kind of embracing 
like learning and making mistakes. I think a lot of my mistakes that I will make aren't so much on the planning side because that is probably one of my strengths. I think a lot of the mistakes I will be make will be more on the tactical side of doing, like not making a good cut and having to throw out an entire piece to trim or, uh, you know, screwing up the grout and having to take a whole section out because the grout dried messy because I didn't sponge it off correctly. Like something dumb like that will be likely where I make my mistakes. But those are the things that luckily, if you're doing the work, aren't crazy expensive. Um, I mean, depending on what materials you pick, of course. But for me, the materials in particular that I'm picking, you know, they're not crazy expensive mistakes. If, if you do them frequently, yeah, it'll certainly add up. Um, but I'm kind of looking forward to, to those mistakes. I watch a lot of YouTube University um, to, to kind of help. Um, so for all the rookies out there, there's nothing special about me. I am not, you know, Albert Einstein IQ. I am not HGTV handy, uh, like those Property Brother twins or anything like that. There's nothing special about me at all. I'm just a guy with a microphone telling you that you can go buy the right tools, buy the right safety equipment, and figure it out. I feel like it's like there's a mic drop right now. <laughs> I know, should, right? Like, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I don't have any other questions, Bill. Um, is there anything else you wanted to you know, share with, with the like-minded investors community before we, we hop off? Not really, no. I mean, I look forward to being the co-host on this podcast and 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 learning so much with all of the listeners as we record. Um, but more importantly, I want to be a resource for everybody. I mean, rookies in particular, I feel very passionate about that being one myself. I want to be as transparent as possible. Um, so through this podcast um, and really through Instagram, I want to be the guy that can answer questions, uh, the guy that kind of shows progress and, and also shows mistakes. I think a lot of people show, you know, the perfect finished product. I want to, I want to show the mess that comes with it. Um, so if you have any questions, even if you feel like it's a stupid question, there are no stupid questions. Feel free to reach out to me. Um, my Instagram is at Billy invest Philly, even though I'm investing in South Jersey, it rhymes. So uh, feel free to DM me, follow me, comment on a pick. I mean, do, do whatever. Um, and, and also feel free to reach out uh, through like-minded investors at like-minded investors. I mean, me and Kier are, are both um, admins, I guess is the right word for the account. Yep. Um, so, so we're both there to ask a question. And if you say, hey, Bill, um, I'm sure Kier would leave that one for me and, and certainly vice versa for, for her. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, we're, we're here to help everybody. Um, and I think that's really all I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this was amazing, Bill. It was an honor to interview you <laughs> and I'm excited for this episode to come out and for everybody Same. to, you know, follow along on this first flip. I think it's going to be a great learning experience for you and for the community. Yeah. Same here. And, uh, it, it is really funny to be on this side of the, uh, questioning for once. So it's been a pleasure. All right. Well, have a good night, Bill. We'll be chatting soon. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.